Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Second Rail Education Podcast. My name is John Heinz. Thank you for coming back uh, for another episode. Today, I have a return guest. I'm thrilled that an old friend, Gerard Michaels, is back. As background, in the 1990s, which feels like both a lifetime ago and yesterday, uh, I met Gerard at the University of Chicago, basically in a pub, and we kind of started arguing about philosophy. And I think that's what we've been doing for the last three decades. <laughs> I don't think it's really stopped. <laughs> Gerard is a public philosopher from the Midwest. He's currently residing in New York, uh, in the New York State, and he uh, injects philosophy into the, the seemingly most peculiar of places. And that's what our topic is about um, today. Gerard, for, for those of you who are interested or curious, Gerard joined me on an earlier episode where we recapped quite frankly, in, in the fashion of kind of a quick review of three seasons of Game of Thrones in five minutes. Uh, we, re- we reviewed our, our first three decades of friendship, but um, today we're kind of coming at it, um, coming at our topic, uh, to the topic of philosophy from a slightly different direction, a little bit, and I believe what will be, although I have a feeling we're going to end up going off on tangents, but I believe it'll be a little <laughs> bit more of a narrow focus than perhaps what we talked about last time. So Gerard, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, John. It's great to be to be here. Appreciate you inviting me back and being open to continuing to talk about uh, philosophy as a topic. Yeah, it's one of my favorite topics, so there's no question we're going to get into some some really interesting meaty stuff. But I'd like to start by just given that we are in the middle, still in the middle of a pandemic, and we're all in unique situations. I think it's kind of nice for people listening to kind of get a context about where we are and what lockdown is like or not like or life is like right now. I'm obviously still in Chicago, where actually, believe it or not, I believe today or tomorrow things are opening up a little bit because the we have made some some achievement goals of not having the spread of the virus. And so I think restaurants are going to be able to open indoors with 25% capacity starting tomorrow. So I don't think we'll be going to a restaurant anytime soon, but it's nice to hear, to see people are actually trying to do things. Where are you and what's life like? Yeah, no, we, we opened up, I think about a week ago where you can eat inside again. And, uh, so, so I, I usually on my Saturday, um, after working in the morning, I stop at a place called Distillery and have some wings and a couple beers, and uh, nice. so that's back on. My wife and daughter are still not ready to go to a restaurant. We talked about possibly doing that today because we're we're in that space where you can, you don't know if it's twenty five capacity, but there's a maximum of four per table. Um, yep. So, um, but we've been open about just over a week, so which has been which has been good. Is it palpable, the difference? I mean, are people actually, do you sense any difference or does it feel just as kind of, uh, I don't know, serious, dour, intense as it did before? Yeah, it's interesting. I, again, I, you know, my life has, you know, it, here has not been as negatively affected. I don't feel because I've been going into uh-huh. work. It's like my routine hasn't changed a lot. And mm-hmm. since we're a family of uh, kind of introverts to some extent, it's sort of, <laughs> um, you, know, um, you know, so to me, you know, and, and, and just, you know, as you know, I came to a new job, which I like. We like where we live. Um, so as much as um, I think a lot of people, you know, are struggling with this, I think yeah. for our family, it's, 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 it's personally not as bad. We, are, we, you know, feel a lot of empathy for folks who are struggling because there are a lot of people doing that. But yeah. for us personally, I think this has been a really great move for us. And so it's been a great place to be in a pandemic. I mean, I live, you know, a 40-minute walk to work. Um, we love, you know, we love the location of our house. You know, we got to experience a lot when he came here and then shut down and then it opened up over the summer and then it shut down and now it's opening up again. And, um, and, you know, Mary's a phenomenal cook, so yeah. she makes great food and still can get, you know, you know, you know, you think of all the things that people are struggling with, um, right. we're actually you, you know, bypassed doing, doing pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, good. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. It's, it's, uh, there definitely are some silver linings to this. And one of the big silver linings for me has been, I have definitely learned how to cook better. My cooking has gotten <laughs> way better. There is no question. So that's great to hear. Um, well, let, let me dive into the top. Let's dive right into the topic today. So our topic is the value of philosophy and decision-making. Yep. I, I think we'll just, by full disclosure, we'll just tell our listeners that we went back and forth on a bunch of ideas. And this was kind of the idea that, that you proposed that I said, great. So we haven't done a lot of preliminary discussion about what that means. So my questions are going to be primarily about what that means. So maybe before we begin, you could just bypass a bunch of my starting questions by putting a little context as to why you like that topic. Yeah, I think, um, 
And I'll go back because I think for people to remember the history of my interest in philosophy, it goes back to, I think I mentioned this maybe in our first um, you know, podcast is back to when I was 13 years old. And so it's been a, you know, philosophy for some reason was a passion of mine. I think I, I think I might have mentioned that my brother was a philosophy major in college. He was 10 years older. So who knows if that was the reason. But um, so philosophy has been something that I've been interested in. And I think, um, and, and I also was interested in the fact that it could be applicable to real, like real life decision making. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you, you may know, John, when you study a lot of philosophy, it seems completely disconnected from the world, right? It's like this very esoteric, very complex language, <laughs> you know, often um, almost, indece- you know, indecipherable language. Um, and, you know, it kind of fits into the concept of the university where, you know, the RB Tower, it's really about thinking, it's not about actually doing anything. Um, and I think my interest in philosophy, but also wanting to kind of live in the world and figure out how to apply things to the world, um, has led me to have that focus on philosophy of trying to make it into something that can actually help um, with, you know, with decision making, I think. And I think I mentioned this in the first podcast. Personally, I think, I, you know, things don't make sense to me instantly. Like some people are fast and get things really quickly. But for me, I think I had to have conceptual context before I can make sense out of things. So philosophy was very helpful for me in a very practical, real world way mm-hmm. to allow me to, um, you know, to be able to understand what was going on in the world. Well, let me ask you a couple questions about definitions that'll just kind of tighten it, tighten this up a little bit for, for me. But, but the biggest one of, of in, in the value of um, the value of philosophy and decision making, the words words that really jumped out at me when I when I first heard you mention the topic were decision making. Yep. And uh, I guess I'm wondering wh- what came to mind for me is I wonder if Gerard wants to talk about decision making with work, family, dating, travel, you know, interactions with the police. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, v- what you eat, what you how you live, who you date, where you you know what you choose for a career. Like, I didn't have a handle on what decision. What do we mean by decision making? I mean, are we talking about daily, quotidian decision making in the in the most minute minute of th- ways where it comes to do I walk out the front door or back door or do I wear these shoes or those shoes or are we talking about or is your interest in the kind of broader the bigger life life moments like when we choose a career or we choose a choose a major in college or choose a choose a time to retire or choose a, a company to work for or an organization to work with um, what, what did you mean by decision making every decision I would say it's just, it doesn't I mean, and you could use philosophy um, in the simplest of decisions. Like, you can ask the question: If I walk out of the, my door, am I going to fall to the center of the earth? Right? You can say that's a science question, but it's really you know you're not doing science because you haven't done an experiment, right? So you can use it in that situation. But for me, it's when it becomes necessary to think a little more abstractly. You know, it's not as straightforward of a decision is where philosophy, I think, becomes valuable. So I think if it's an easy decision, you probably don't need a philosophical framework. But as the decision gets more complex in any area, I think philosophy is helpful. Okay, so explain that. Why why does the magnitude of a... Why does the philosophy impact the magnitude of decision? Why would it affect and, and 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 maybe we can even narrow bring it down to a couple concrete examples because it's always useful to do this what what's what's a kind of an archetypal archetypical example for you of what this what, what a moment in life would be where you think philosophy is particularly useful <laughs> yeah that's um i think that's where it might be good to get to a framework right because okay why i think um you know, human decision-making takes place at an abstract level, basically, right? I mean, um, you know, when you think of anything you do or anything you discuss, you have to use language and, you know, that is abstracted, right? You can't, you know, if you look at all the details of anything you're doing, it becomes infinite, right? It becomes impossible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what philosophy naturally is an abstracting approach, right? It says, I'm going to step away from that and try to come up with, and you can say language is a part of philosophy. That's why Wittgenstein, you know, you, there's language philosophers, there's hermeneutics, which is the text. I mean, you know, you look at all the philosophers, they're always sort of trying to step away and abstract from all the complexity that we face as humans, right? And 
Um, and, and, and until you can come to an abstracted level and talk about an abstracted level, you can't really make an effective decision. So let me talk about something simple, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the aspects, when you look at what economics is, is that when people have too many choices, they get anxiety, right? They don't know what to do, right? So too much choice is fundamentally something humans struggle with, right? Yes. But but if you take philosophy and you say, you abstract from that and say, what's leading me to struggle with the fact that I actually can choose among a hundred things, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that seems like a good thing. And then then the reality comes back to how do I begin to narrow my choices so that I'm not, you know, you know, and so it provides you with a process of thinking about something so that you step away and basically say, huh, there's a way to step away from the fact that I'm anxious about the fact that I have a hundred choices. And I can then think about a way to, you know, make a decision, right. That allows me to take advantage of the many choices, but then narrow myself quickly enough. So it doesn't create anxiety. So I can make choices that are in my best interest. Right. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Then let's go into the framework. So, let, so how would you discuss a framework for decision making? Yeah, so I think in the in the last um, the last podcast, I talked about my, my metaphysical poem. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so we'll include a, I'll include a link to that actually in the, <laughs> in the show notes for people who want to take a look. But, but. The idea of coming up with that was coming up with the most abstracted notion of existence that actually applies to all of existence, right? So the idea of metaphysics that I think of it is, um, you know, it's the underlying nature of reality. What applies to everything you do that you have to keep in mind when you're making a decision, right? So you, you should never leave these things out when you're making a decision. Once you decide you need philosophy to make a decision, right? You can decide I don't need it, as we talked about. Um, and so if you remember, the first thing was nothingness, right? Mm-hmm. And that nothingness is pre big bang, you know, and I know this is going to probably get, but eventually we'll, we'll move beyond this, but then you get into boom, right? The big bang, which is again, mm-hmm. kind of based in science, but something as someone who hasn't done the science can conclude is the best conclusion about how the world, you know, how the universe started, right? It's the best data when you talk to people who know anything about this, they say, oh, there was nothingness before. There was a big bang. A spark. A and then there was randomness, right? Mm-hmm. And, and very few people, if you think about it, say that's not the way the universe started, right? It's basically pretty fundamental. Mm-hmm. And then when you think about it, then there was, I mean, I, and, and I use language carefully, so there's stuff, context, change, right? And that just means, you know, I mean, and I use stuff, context, change, because there's, you think about some of the earliest things that were part of the universe were things like a quark, right? Like the strong nuclear force, you know, like the weak, you know, um, electromagnetic force. They, there's evidence that they were present at the very early part of the universe and are still present today, right? And so, so you have this stuff, the context is what people might say space, and then there's things changing and then randomness drives that change, right? And that's kind of the basics of the everything that's ever happened since the beginning of the universe. And then there's coherence, stability, and sustainability, and that's where you get back to the quirks, you know. And 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 the idea here is these are abstractions, right? Yes. That are pretty common language. I mean, you can understand what something cohering is, right? You can understand that something is stable, and you know the difference between something that sustains. It's like a relationship, John. You can go back to the simplicity of a relationship, right? You can say, what are the relationships that I've had that have kind of cohered, right? Right. They kind of stabilized and then kind of sustained. Mm-hmm. You know. So you could take anything. You could take a passion you've had or an interest you've had and say, what are the things that I it kind of started to cohere, like kind of kind of liked it, then it stabilized and then it sustained, right? And some of them cohere, but don't stabilize. Some of them cohere, stabilize, but don't sustain, right? And so, and then you get, that's present with anything. And then you get this, this idea of life comes along, right? That's a very fundamental change in the universe. And then you have this notion of the subconscious and there's this book called the, um, the strange order of things. And, you know, what it talks about is that bacteria, even the first life forms actually adjusted to their environment, right? That when bacteria was first on the earth, it essentially, um, would notice if, if being around more bacteria led to survival or less, right? Mm -hmm. So in Mm -hmm. some cases, and so, 
And then you had this really fundamental change, which was this, the conscious mind, right? It wasn't just the subconscious or something that was less understandable. It was this notion of consciousness, right? And so, so life has had these very abstract things that have been around since the beginning. And then you have narrative. And now we're getting into things that actually influence mm. decision-making, right? So, okay. So, so narrative, and if you look at the history of humans, there's this notion that 70,000 to 100,000 years ago, we developed imagination and we had the cave paintings like in 40,000 BC. And that's, I guess there was something discovered recently that might've been 5,000 years earlier of, you know, of a, of a, of a drawing where humans started to create narratives, right? And narratives have been around and have been, and, and, and one of the things I say from a philosophical perspective is when you think about, when you look at the nature, you know, of, of um, life forms that are living in very difficult situations, right? Um, in those difficult situations, what's a way to survive once you're conscious of what's going on in your life, right? Once you're conscious of the horror of your life, how do you figure out a way to keep going, right? And, and humans lived in extreme poverty for the most part, probably until, you know, high percentage until like 1700, right? And so basically this life form, why did it keep going? And, you know, and basically this notion of narrative, the ability to tell a story to distract yourself. And, and I'll use a more modern day example. I don't know if you know, there was the, a woman in the Holocaust, right? Who was living in these horrible, horrible circumstances. And the way she kept herself, you know, from, from just being miserable, was she remembered this dress that she wore or that she would wear when she'd go on a date, right? She would think about this dress and this narrative kind of kept her going. Um, and then, you know, the notion of reason and data, right? Mm -hmm. And then reason was something that humans didn't really understand well until about 600 BC. So you think 70, 80, 70,000 to 100,000 years ago, you've got this narrative, not till 600 BC, do you have an understanding of reason? And that's where there was Copernicus, not Copernicus, I'm sorry, um, Confucius, um, Lao Tzu, Buddha, the um, um, Jewish intellectuals, the early Greeks, you know, the pre-Socratics. There was a lot of um, reasoning that was beginning to take shape. And when you think about the notion of data, which is the next part of the metaphysical poem, that didn't really get understood until um, the scientific revolution, until Copernicus, which is like 1500. Um, and so, and if you look at yourself as a human being and saying, and this is where philosophy matters, you know, this notion of narrative, right? And, and you know, John, about the number of cognitive biases, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the traditional there's like, ones. Pardon? The traditional ones. Well, there's like, if you, you look it up, and, you know, if you go and look do a, a search, there's like a hundred different, you know, cognitive biases you know there's there's um you know recency can, bias yes exactly all, yeah, exactly like exactly yeah, all those traditional and so biases, yeah so what i would say is those are all you know the narrative right because the narrative leads you away it's, it was a survival mechanism for a long time in human history but it leaves you leads you away from reason and data and it and you know john when people present a story like when you go to see a talk right the, the most powerful talks are those where the person tells a great story, right? Mm -hmm. If you just lay out a reason and data, mm -hmm. everybody says, oh, it's just boring, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so... Well, well, let me ask you a question about that because I'm, 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 so I'm tracking with you. So I'm, in, in the metaphysical poem, the structure goes, there's nothingness, there's something, it's random, well, there's coherence. Nothingness, boom, randomness, boom, stuff, randomness. context, change, coherence, stability, right. sustainability, life, subconscious, right. conscious, conscious, narrative, narrative reason, reason, data. data. All right. So, so it, it sounds to me, it's interesting that you're, it, 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 it sounds like these are sequential. Yep. And so if they're sequential, it's interesting. You're, I'm, I guess I'm wondering why you're putting na narrative before reason and data when you're saying that data only makes sense in the context of a narrative, explain that distinction to me. Like why would, why is right. data, why does data come after narrative, I guess is what I'm asking. Because I think, I don't think humans understood data, you know, until a much later. They understood right. narrative first. So this well, is they a, the structure of this is more evolutionarily. It. The beautiful thing about the narrative, you don't have to understand it to use it, right? 
Okay. Whereas reasoning requires a little bit more awareness of what you're doing. It doesn't just, you know, so once you start realizing you can construct a story in your consciousness and it could distract you from what you're doing, it just becomes almost like a skill set, right? It becomes a thing to survive. Whereas reasoning starts to use the capacity of the conscious mind, right? It didn't, you know, when the, you know, the conscious mind came along and the ability to reason came along, humans clearly probably did it as they kind of, the ones that survived, but they didn't understand it, right? They didn't know. um, And so narrative was just something that kind of like randomness, it was just there and usable and effective, but it just became such a fundamental part of being human, right? As you, we tell stories, we tell stories and those stories get our attention and they draw us into things, right? And so, and we know that's the case. The best speakers don't necessarily provide you the best reason and data and ethics. They... Tell a great story for sure. And then, for know, sure, you, you don't. So, right. so let me. Well, so so just to clarify, so for 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 the applicability stuff, does the applicability of this of this framework apl- apply in this order, or is this just kind of a kind of a set? Are we still setting the, the table? No, it, it's an abstraction, right? It's the it's the it's the most abstracted. So you know, so remember my original point about decision making is you can't be immersed in all the details of your decision, or you'll never back to the example, right? You have too many choices. If you thought about every aspect of your body, right? Imagine if you tried to decide if you walked out of your house and you try to assess your heart, every cell, every, you would go completely crazy, right? You would never be able to get out of your house if you try to think, how is this cell in this part of my body or this particular, you know? So, so the whole idea is you have to abstract and you abstract to the notion of body. So my, the point of bringing up the metaphysical poem is it's showing the power of abstraction, right? Got it. It's saying we can abstract as humans to the point where we can kind of get the fundamentals of all existence that apply to everything. So, so then that's a clue to where that's what we have to do to be better decision makers. Right. But we also have to use the components of the metaphysical poem to help us. So for instance, when you're, when you, when you're meeting with somebody, right. And they have a very different view from you and they're saying things that completely make no sense to you, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to step back and ask yourself the question, you know, are they not making sense because I'm caught up in a narrative? Is there some story of my life or some, you know, and you can look at this in politics, John, right? You can say, if you buy a liberal narrative or if you buy a conservative narrative or you buy a centrist narrative, it, it influences the way you see reason, data, and ethics. And so when you're making a decision, you have to step back and say, wait a second, is a narrative affecting me? You know, and how do I get back if it's necessary? Like sometimes narratives are aesthetically, you know, and if you go to the the rest of the metaphysical poem, it 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 focuses on um, metaphysics, aesthetics, and ethics, right? I mean, we as humans, I mean, metaphysics is just sort of the poem structure and the fact that so that's not kind of as interesting. But then we have yeah. aesthetics, right? Yep. It's it's what makes you feel powerfully connected to something, right? And, and I would argue that everything aesthetic is narrative driven. It's powerfully narrative driven. So if you love something and it's powerfully something you want to be around, it's unlikely like you're making that decision because you're using reasoning, data and ethics, right? You're, you're just a narrative. There's a narrative attached to you or that's part of you that makes you connect with that part. Exactly. That makes you say this experience feels phenomenal. Just like this experience, this distraction. See, when things were horrible, right, we use that distraction to survive. But then once things got a lot better, all of a sudden you have this ability to say, huh, we as humans have, you know, once the middle class got created or we went from extreme poverty to poverty. All of a sudden, it's like, wait a second, I don't have to distract myself. I could just engage in something enjoyable like art or a book, right? Or, you know, or a snowfall, you know, or, you know, or architecture, you know, and it, and and some people, you know, pick up Shakespeare, read it and find no interest in it. Some people pick up Shakespeare and love it. Some people hear their kid, you know, start banging on a, you know, on a, on a, on a piano and everybody else would think it's the worst thing in the world. And they're like, I'm loving this. I'm well, that's, that's good. kind of one of the questions. That was one of the, one of the questions I was going to get to. And, and, and now that we're getting, this is, this is the fun stuff, aesthetics, ethics. This is kind of where I was hoping we were, we were going to head yep. and I'm getting it. So, uh, so I, 
I, like a lot of people, was raised a pretty conservative Catholic where I yep. was kind of my education was kind of shut up and do what you're told. Yep. And I remember getting my first job as an English teacher and teaching um, Shakespeare and, you know, uh, Sophocles and the Iliad and a lot of other classical texts. And I had studied them in college, but I hadn't taught them. And, you know, I always say, and so did my parents say that you don't really learn anything until you teach it. And I remember those first years teaching that first year in particular, being just blown away by what I didn't know and how much I learned by, by, by teaching. But what I really learned was I learned, and I'm convinced of this now, 30 years later, that what I really learned at that time was a narrative that these things are valuable. And no matter how far I get away from Shakespeare, when someone says Shakespeare has no value, I'm just like, are you a complete buffoon? Yep. And I do sometimes ask myself, do I only have that belief that Shakespeare is valuable, for example? And I certainly do not. I'm not going to say Shakespeare is like the only valuable artist or even the most important or anything like that. I'm just saying uh, there is value for me in, uh, in, in, in many of in pretty much all classical texts. But the uh, but there's value in me and I see people who don't see the value in it. And I and I I wonder if my seeing them as valuable as aesthetically beautiful is related to a narrative that I learned when I was 24, just got out of college and started to teach. Yeah, I would argue yes, because, you know, my experience was, you know, the first aesthetic that I one of the first, you know, aesthetics, you know, that was more philosophical was the lyrics of Jimi Hendrix and John Lennon, right? Yeah. And, you know, some of the first books I read that got me thinking were the Autobiography of Malcolm X, Elders Kleber's Soul on Ice, um, a book by Stokely, Stokely Carmichael or about Stokely, Stokely Carmichael. So those were like, and that just happened to be what I got exposed to. Um, and, you know, and eventually I went on to go to college and start reading these books that everybody said were the best books, right? And as much as, you know, being a kid, you know, also raised conservative Catholic, also raised without a lot of books in my house, you know, all, mm -hmm. you know, this assumption that, well, these people must know something. Right. And so, um, and I reached a time later in life and it, and it, and it gets people irritated where I say, I think Shakespeare's a terrible writer. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I think sure. he writes in a way that language is, I mean, and the example I use is Cervantes, right? You could translate Cervantes. I could read, um, Don Quixote, it's translated from, I presume, Spanish or Latin or whatever you read it in. And I could really enjoy the book. I've never seen a writing of, I like one Shakespeare poem, really. I mean, I like one, um, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow Keeps in the Spuddy Pace. The only one I think is actually now after I've stepped back on my own. And I think most of his other writing is forced, you know, not translatable to me, in the, you know, at all, right? You know, and so... It's a question I ask people, and it's sort of funny. I met somebody here who's not like an intellectual, and I made this case, and he said, for some reason, I always like Shakespeare. Like, I said, how many people read Shakespeare for the first time and like it? Like, most people read it, and they're like, this is terrible. And the teacher says, oh, no, it's brilliant. And they start telling you a story about it, and they start, and then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my God. And, and I went through that period, right? When I first read it, I didn't like it. Then I figured I had to like it, and so I read it, and I tried to like it, and it, and then I went back and reflected on it and said, I don't really don't like any Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I still like, you know, sometimes music lyrics or, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? So, yes. so that is an example. I mean, that's one of the classic examples I use. And it's not to say that Shakespeare aesthetically didn't connect to you, but it's when the elites say to people, if you don't like Shakespeare, like you just said, you must be a buffoon, right? That you use that language, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the tendency is a turn in a an aesthetic discussion into a reason, data, and ethics-based discussion when it's merely aesthetics, right? And, and that's why philosophy can help articulate that very clearly. And, and so I'm never going to say your experience with Shakespeare isn't a great experience, mm -hmm. but if I have a great experience with the Bay City Rollers, or if I have a great experience with, you know, watching, you know, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, to tell me that that aesthetic experience is less valuable than your aesthetic experience with Shakespeare seems like a you know it, it's a hard thing to justify in the context of reason data and ethics so 
Well, it, so it, it, what's coming to mind for me as you're talking about this is I recently listened to a podcast about a, a writer, a writing podcast about a woman who's very excited about the possibility of artificial intelligence helping her write novels. Uh-huh. And essentially, there are a couple of these programs that do that that are available. The big ones are obviously run by Facebook, the big guys, Google. So, but the um, but what they do is they take a whole bunch. These computers take a whole bunch of data from a whole yep. bunch of texts, whatever they get, and then they learn how to write and yep. you can give it a prompt and then they go run off in its direction. And the ones that used, the ones that, that these, these artificial intelligent machines that write, that used data sets that were, for example, all the classical novels, plays, and poems that were ever written produced very different writing than the ones that went on to Reddit and scraped all the data for the last five years of Reddit and just yep. used that as an example of what writing is and then pr- produced writing that was somehow a regression to the mean of all that stuff, right? Whatever they do, whatever, however they, you know, use use the algorithm runs to make, to, to come up with what, is, what yep. is a good sentence or what are good ideas. And it does kind of, for me, I mean, I I am prepared to say that our, that aesthetic experiences are not that 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 everyone can have different aesthetic experiences. I'm not prepared to say that there's no better and worse at all uh, in any of these. In other words, I mean, this is this is as an English teacher, this was my old thing, right? You would always have students say, you know, I don't, I could take a shit on a piece of paper and it's it's art um and i'd be like well no there is there are there is there are many forms of good poetry and there are many good poems and there are many many <laughs> things can be good but there are also bad poems and there but, is but bad. this is where this is where i'm saying from you're already using the the language i would argue of reason data and ethics and this is where okay. you can lose philosophy okay you're you're using reason data and ethics right okay if somebody says now I truly have a positive experience when I see a piece of shit on a thing. Right. To argue they don't feel something that's positive, it's it's impossible to you know to, to part to say. Well, what if you have evidence that they're that they're doing it for that they're it's fraudulent that they're doing it for nefarious. No, no. If somebody's reasons. lying about their feelings, yeah, you know, they're lying about their feelings, issue. and you have evidence they're lying about. Yeah, their but feelings. then the, but that's my point is. I, when I tell you I don't like Shakespeare, I'm not lying about you know. So you you you. But this fair. is an ethical okay. question, right? That's fair. That's, That's fair. reason and data question. Are you being honest? And everybody assumes, like when I say, you know, I think Shakespeare's a terrible writer. Yeah. Or I think Dylan was one of the most was the most Trumpian musician of all time. He manipulated people, and I believe that. I don't oh, say that because I'm making yeah. it up, or that uh-huh. Lincoln was a terrible president. I could walk through, you know. In the Ooh, case each of, one of these is going to be a future podcast, by the way. Each one of these is interesting. You're going <laughs> no, but, to lay these out, and we're going to have a fun conversation. Okay, but but that's going. the whole point. It's just, but but it's their aesthetic judgments. It's well, no, well, well, Lincoln is a you know, Lincoln is the one of the best narratives in history, right? He was one of the most brilliant because the two things Lincoln did that were aesthetically powerful. He's one of the best politicians in history, right? Mm-hmm. And if you read the book, you know, by Doris, you know, um, uh, Goodwin, um. And you watch the movie. Yeah, team of Rivals. Yeah. It is like, you, you know, and it was the first time I realized I was a big fan of Lincoln until I read that book. And I had the exact opposite conclusion that everybody else did. I said, oh, my God. He was a master storyteller. He was a master politician. He was not. He didn't. And then I started looking at the facts of his presidency. And they were all like the worst president in history, right? You know, the most deaths Americans, oh yeah, in war in history, six times World War Two, right? Mm-hmm. You look at every piece of evidence. The war started after he became president. It ended after he died. It's like mm-hmm. so the war started. You know, so if you look at how you're going to judge a president, mm-hmm. his vice president he picked was a racist pig mm-hmm. that ultimately, because he died, you know, you know, and he wasn't an abolition. I mean, you go through the facts. And like, you know, like a friend of mine made the argument, he said, so the interesting thing is I, I learned the aesthetic of Lincoln. And then I said, well, what are the facts of Lincoln? And then I said, my friend was like, well, he, he got this, he passed, you know, the, um, the 15th or 14th Amendment. And I said, but he did that in northern states. I mean, he did that with, like, with only the northerners. So you thought that was brilliant? That really was hard that they won the war. 
you, you know, and then when they did the, they got the states to ratify that, they basically had carpetbaggers in charge, and he was mm-hmm. he was dead. And I'm like, so you, so the interesting things. Once I drop the narrative of Lincoln, and then look at the facts of Lincoln, my conclusion, and that's the, that's what philosophy helps with. It's like I bought in, you know, I bought in the share narrative of. Shakespeare. It's not like I didn't. I bought in the narrative of, of, of Lincoln. But then when I looked at the, started going back to my honest response to Shakespeare, I realized I, I kind of like basically one of his things, Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Tomorrow Keeps. In the, I still think it's, you know, for Macbeth, that was the only one mm-hmm. that I look back on that I really like. Everything else, when I hear people quote Shakespeare, I'm thinking, that's not that good. I don't, I don't see what, you know. So that's where philosophy helped me step back and say, A, I'm not aesthetically connected to Shakespeare, and that's okay. It doesn't mean I'm an idiot. And B, Lincoln factually was a terrible president. You know, so, so where for you in that is the philosophy? Is the philosophy in that in that process, or is the well, back where to is remember, the philosophy? In it's it? it's it's it, go back to the metaphysical poem, right? Yep. It's knowing when something's a narrative. Understanding narrative is fundamental to what we do as humans, and it drives our aesthetic. So that's a philosophical understanding. Knowing the the, the history and understanding of reason. Data and ethics, right? So it's so, the integration of all of those yeah, in some it, iterative or circular yeah. fashion, or okay. Well, it's being able to abstract and understand the abstractions that have the most ability to help you understand. First of all, understand what being human is in the world and everything. And and the reason I use philosophy versus science is because science is too narrow. See, I view science as a subset of philosophy. It's a mm-hmm. t- it's a particular set of tools of reasoning and sure. data, sure. but it's not the only tools we use as humans, right? We, ha- you know, we, we have to choose so many things, make so many judgments where we don't have science, right? That we did, right? I mean, the notion of science is not reading that somebody tells you they did science. Science is actually actively doing something, doing the experiment, doing the experiment when you're controlling variable, you know, and, you know, and so... Work, you, know, you could read about science. And this is a debate I used to have at the University of Chicago with people. They'd say, I'd say, how many things have you really, do you know because you did the science? Right. You know, like, you know, two things, maybe, if you know. And so everything, every judgment you ever make, well, I read science. That's not science. Reading science, that's reading. Right. You know, and yep. that's, and so. Well, this is why when you mentioned earlier the, um, and when I mentioned the, 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 the creation of the narrative in our minds yep. that become the formative narratives upon which, and yep. I'm using my words here, not yours, you know, but, but essentially the formative narrative is upon which we build these aesthetic judgments later in life, or maybe that, that really become prejudices or biases later in life as well. But the, when, when you mentioned earlier that those, those narratives are, um, that those narratives are 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 tied to uh, uh, a kind of a philosophical outcome. I was I was I was I wasn't sure what you meant, but I but I think I'm getting it now. No, they, no, they no. I didn't say they're, but they can influence errors in your thinking, right? Or mm-hmm. a narrative can help you feel good, right? That's the whole point. It's just narratives really. Our, our reality of, you know, so philosophy addresses what it, the real components of to be human are, right? Mm-hmm. So it says it, it, it has to look honestly at what being human is. Mm-hmm. So all I'm saying about the narrative is realize you're powerfully influenced by it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's going to bias you or mm-hmm. excite you and bring you joy. And just mm-hmm. know about that. Philosophy just says, just know about that, you know, and, and, and then make sure when you're making decisions that might have consequence, right? That you don't leave that information out, right? It doesn't mean, you know. So, well, so it also example- goes to credibility of the source, right? I mean, this yeah. is—it's part of the reason why the person who reads science says they do science by reading, and part of the reason why you, when you went to college, you know, thought you liked Shakespeare because you were told to like Shakespeare yep. by a lot of very people you respected was because the source of where we get that information, whether it was the reading, the article, yep. the author, or the, the yep. professor or whomever, were credible people who we thought we needed to 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 listen to, yep. and it 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 for. It seems to me that that it it really gets back to an idea of just cr- what what do we believe and why, yep. and it seems like what you're saying is a big part, if not most, of what we believe is because of how how we perceive the source of where we're getting that information. Yeah, yeah. The narratives that you know, and, and my original narrative was, you know, 
you know, I came from no books. My brother talked about this place when he was at the University of Illinois where he was around all these people who were studying political science and philosophy. So I had this narrative that said, oh, there's all this interesting stuff in a university, right? Yeah, 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 sure. And, right. you know, he was like and 10 he, years he, older he, than he, me. He, he believed it. And, well, he... I don't know if he believed it. He Saw told these stories it. about it. Well, it wasn't even clear because he, in the end, got his accounting master's, went on to be a very practical business guy. You know, right. acknowledged he only took philosophy because that's what everybody else was doing. But eventually he wanted to go to, you know, and then, you know, so that's the, you know, and so me, for me, it was like, oh, my God. And, you know, and then I went to the University of Illinois myself mm-hmm. and I got no intellectual. It was like, it was a completely different place. It was like this huge disappointment. It's like. Oh my God, everybody here, I couldn't get in a philosophical discussion to save my life unless people were smoking dope. That was the only time it was like, (laughs) they they loved Gerard coming in the room when they were smoking dope because it was interesting. Well before the state of Illinois had legalized marijuana, right? Pardon? Yeah. Well before Illinois had legalized marijuana. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, um, but, 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 you know, come on, it's just, I'm not going to. It's college. But but my point is, even if I didn't smoke pot and walked into the room and everybody else was smoking pot, they would still want to talk to me because I, you know, exactly. all of a sudden I was interesting. But exactly. you know, in any other place, it was like there was no, you know, there was no interest. In well, it. let me ask you a question about you. You mentioned one of the word that I wanted to get to, and I feel like you were you you were using it as the culmination of a lot of this in many ways, which is ethics. Yep. And I guess I do have a question, and I guess just to level set a little bit, um, maybe you can define ethics for me or how you define ethics. Uh, for me, is it is is an ethical consideration or is is the culmination of philosophical thinking or good philosophical thinking or I don't know is the culmination of philosophical thinking an ethical standard that one applies or is ethics the end game or is there some other way that you're viewing ethics? Yeah, it's just. I mean, I think once humans, you know, became conscious and became aware of what they were doing, right, as opposed to beings before consciousness had no awareness. Mm-hmm. You can begin to assign value to things. I mean, that's what humans could do, right? They could basically say, this is something that is a bad thing, or and this is something that's a good thing. I mean, you took back to your Catholic training, right? The Catholic Church, right, really leveraged the Jesus Christ narrative, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, and you know, the Jesus Christ narrative, when you look at the fundamentals of it, it's basically, you know, treat everybody the most vulnerable people well, right? I mean, if you look at the fundamentals of what Jesus Christ said, he hung out with the people who were the, you know, he was like the first one in history who basically went against, in a, in a way that was very powerful, the hierarchy, right? He was basically rebelling against the Jewish... Yeah, the establishment, yeah. Well, the, you know, the people with the funny hats. I mean, you watch Jesus Christ Superstar, right? You see the way... <laughs> and that it's not that, you know... But, know when you, but when you think about it, and so here was the first narrative in history where somebody basically said, these powerful folks who are in these fancy castles, right, are wrong. And these people who are these regular people who are, you know, the, you know who build the ships... Or are the you know the you know could be prostitutes could be you know, carpenters could be the you know the regular people the working right. people they are my people right right it was a really fundamental ethical position was valuing the vulnerable over the powerful right for you know you know and you know and at a level that was like off the charts powerfully saleable to the human species right and so and you know the Catholic religion often sells better in countries that are poorer, right? You know, as the United States gets richer, right, Christianity becomes more diluted when you go to the countries that are poorer, you, you know, you, yes. you go to, you know, and so, so it, it was, it was a really powerful narrative. narrative that, talk, you know, and ethics is about what you value, right? It's what you say is better than something else, right? It's, and it, and it's about more than just aesthetics. It's like, it's about like life and death, right? It's about, you know, human, you know, you know, do you, do you view this human as having any value? You know, so for a long time, if you were poor, you know, the, the rich sort of thought you were nothing. I could do anything to you. I can enslave you. You're a nothing. You're, you know, mm-hmm. and I, because I am king or because I'm a prince or because I'm a, a knight, I am special. I am better than you. 
you know, and so it, so it begins to get away from just aesthetics that are like enjoyable or not enjoyable experiences to impacts on life. And so to me, ethics begins to impact life, right? So distill that down for me, distill that down. So distill down the, the impact of this, this philosophical thinking, you know, through the metaphysical, physical prone, et cetera, distill that down to ethics. Like what the, the link is that it's a, it's, it is a distillation of that process or of that. Of that it's just approach. one component, John. It's a point is okay. It's a component. When humans okay. became conscious and all, all of a sudden could sort of value or not value first, they could value from an aesthetic perspective and say, I like this painting. I don't like this painting. I like being in the cold weather. I don't like, you know, it's just, there's no impact on the human experience, right? Whether you like Shakespeare or not, doesn't ultimately affect life or death, right? But once you start valuing where life is impacted, you can think about this with, with climate change, right? And it's not just the impact on humans, but it's the impact on the fact that we're, you know, killing lots of life forms, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. ethics was the thinking that took the aesthetic experience and started applying it to stuff that mattered, right? Because whether you like Shakespeare or not, as much as you can tell me it matters, or whether I don't like Shakespeare, it doesn't matter that much. Yeah. But whether you believe it's okay to start killing Jews matters. You know, it has. Well, this is also today. I today I frequently catch myself wanting to tell young people who I meet, especially during this pandemic. I'm like, go into science. We we need more scientists. We need <laughs> we need more people. We need more people studying solutions to these problems. This is definitely uh, this is definitely something where maybe uh, I think you know that they're. they're that maybe there's a uh, a value in science over yep. uh, over poetry, but um, but let me let me let me let me linger on that a little bit because I think it's an important. But point. can I just step in? Oh yeah, go ahead. No, but because aesthetic experiences, that's why the poets and the musicians are still important because they help us get through the hard times, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, science yeah, sure. solves problems for us. Sure. But, so I would just say, don't underestimate the power of, but. But don't judge somebody because you know they like NASCAR and you like opera, right? So, don't judge so, somebody because they love, you know, looking at a piece of shit on a piece of paper. You want to see a Picasso? It doesn't matter. It's like if you if you're honest, you know, again, you see the honesty or dishonesty is an ethical issue. If they're just pulling your chain to fight against you and they really do like Shakespeare, but they're pretending they don't, then that's an ethical issue. They're just lying to you. So, so what I wanted to linger on because you raised okay. it, and I thought it was important for this too, is we we've we've touched a little bit on Catholicism and religion slightly yep. in this, and I thought we may, maybe could come back to that because I think it's it's funny when you started this entire conversation with in your in your metaphysical poem with we start with nothingness. What comes to mind is Buddhism and yep. uh, and and kind of the thought of of nothingness, and certainly I think you know you and I have already both recounted stories of Catholic upbringing and yep. the impact of that and kind of thinking, and I've I've given a lot of thought of how religion interfaces with kind of philosophical thinking yep. and ethical thinking and ethical behavior and where it kind of uh, where it it goes away and this, this so i, I want to kind of linger a little bit on religion okay. and as a as context for me in it um a big part of my graduate work was when i back when i did a you know a masters in english a million years ago was um, was post-structuralism and, and it was the, the, it was Jacques Derrida's deconstruction and yep. Michel Foucault and, and post-structuralism. You know, I saw, and, I saw Jacques Derrida give three speech, three talks at the University of Chicago. Wow. Yeah, it was really interesting. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. No, I mean, and you and it, and I know that these these philosophers and these I don't know if you want to call them philosophers, they were theorists at the time. There was yeah. some debate in the I community became, about I hated, whether they were philosophers. I hated Derrida's writing, but he was one of the most brilliant speakers I ever saw in my life. His writing sucks. Yeah, it's, it's, it's it, it is it falls apart on itself exactly like he wants it to. But the uh, but the the the, ba- the core argument for me that I, my takeaway was always you know that power structures were the problem, and that basically all the institutions that we have built up in the world, including religions, would be part of the problem. I.e., a problem meaning a problem of a understanding of things in a in a, a free of these. Uh, free of the biases or the structures that are put upon that put upon people because of those those yep. large organizations, institutions, whatever they are, whether it's the legal system or democracy, yep. that they actually work against free understanding of things because you were buried in that so much. But it comes back to religion as a big one, right? I mean, it hangs it hangs out there as kind of a significant 
formative experience for many, if not most people, even for those people who would say they're not religious. Yep. I would call myself an atheist, but I'm still influenced by my Catholicism. Exactly. So talk a little bit about that and how does that come across? I think religions, you know, can be one of the most powerful aesthetic stories, you know, that affect humans. That's why they're, they, you know, and, you know, and that's why, and it, and you notice I included Buddha, maybe I didn't, but as one of the, I think he was both an intellectual, I mean, he was a philosopher thinking about reasoning at the same time, you know, but at that time he was also exploring the nature of reality through that, re, his own reasoning, right? I mean, that's why I mentioned Confucius or Lao Tzu, you know, very often are the, um, you know, the, the, the Jewish scholars, they were beginning to think about things, you know, through both the lens of their, you know, religious or whatever the structure of their thinking about religious issues, which again, if you think about religion, it gets back to values, ethics, right? It's a notion of ethics. And, you know, and then it's also, and, you know, it's, it's a set of stories that are aesthetic. And then it can also be in some cases, reasoning about how you should make decisions, right? And, you know, and so, so religion. It just, it, it falls right, it falls right into your, into your structure. Yeah, it, it's, it falls yeah, right in. It's, it's more powerfully often the narrative, more than it, and often powerfully an ethical position, but often the ethical position is driven by the narrative rather than driven by the ethics, right? And, 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 and sometimes it hits on something that is unique. And that's why I would say Christianity saying the, the most vulnerable are the best people flipped history at that time, right? There was nobody saying that I would bet at that time, right? In a, in a large scale way, you know, and, and that flipped and all of a sudden it opened the door to noticing that maybe the person who does, you know, is, you know, cleaning your toilet is actually the best person as a, the person who just won the Super Bowl, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it flipped, mm-hmm. you know, the ethical position, you know, through it, you know, you know, but again, but I would argue that the Christ story was completely used by the Catholic church. I mean, they, they took the Pharisees and their whole structure, right? That's the, that's the absurdity. That's why the Jesus Christ superstar movie basically points out basically the Catholic church said, huh, this Pharisee stuff is good, but we're going to use the narrative of Christ to gain power and ultimately be a, an influence compared to kings, right? And and that's what the popes and the cardinals absolutely did. They, they It was a political move that the original story of Christ, and it's still a debate today, right? People go back, wait a second, go back to Christ's story versus the religious construct that basically tries to say women who choose to have an abortion are horrible people, right? Or people who don't believe abortions are good are horrible people, right? It becomes mm-hmm. this whole... Um, effort to, you know, to turn it into an ethical thing that had nothing to do what, what ultimately, when you look at the stories of Christ, what he really was doing, right? He was basically fundamentally saying the regular folks are great and these people in power are bad people and they don't, you know, and again, he said it through the, you know, the connection to I'm the son of God, but ultimately it was a critique of the power structure of his time. And these are not you would make the same same argument with most religions, world religions, or is this unique to Christianity? That's an interesting question because I know you know you and I we know Christianity the best, right? Because <laughs> we we lived in it. Um, I probably don't know the historical context of Buddha, um, you know, or the you know historical context of Hinduism, you know, or the what's your gut? You know, pardon? What's your gut feeling? That they would be similar. That there would yeah. be a similarity, that there was something about, um, you know, and you look at the, the, you know, let's go back to just the, you know, again, I don't know it well, so I'm not going to pretend in the way I know Christianity well is you look at the, there's a lot of critique of the Muslim religion, that there's people who pick out cherry pick stuff to point to things in the Muslim religion that make it into something that, you know, people like, um, what's the guy who was uh, the, uh, <laughs> what? the, the guy who was an alcoholic intellectual you'll know his name was anti <laughs> anti a lot of alcoholic intellectuals out there i don't know no no he was one. against but he was anti the, the 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 muslim religion he attacked it okay. um, in a very very strong way he was he was just a very clever and, and again i'm sorry his name slipping my mind but but the point is um 
and that created a lot of debates about people who basically, you know, um, indicated that he, you know, he pointed to all the worst aspects of the Muslim religion. Sure, sure, sure. Which you could easily do with Christianity in a millisecond, of course. So, so my, yeah, my, my belief would be based upon um, um, that they're similar. Well, so I think we've definitely laid the groundwork for some future podcasts. I have a few things that I want to continue talking about, but I, I, I have a whole list more of questions we didn't get to. But I do want to, I kind of want to tie it up a little bit with the takeaway. My takeaway or what I'm hearing from what from where you're coming from is that having this philosophical framework in place and both kind of accepting it or kind of believing it or, or kind of understanding it and applying it can lead to improved decision making. Correct. Okay. So can you give any examples of that? And like, I guess I'm wondering, I mean, I happen to know we have a couple of teenage listeners. We got a couple of college level listeners and we got a couple of listeners in their nineties. <laughs> so, so I'm kind of wondering, you know, like, is there, when you're picturing the kind of, I don't know, some of the kind of best applicability of this framework, where do you see it applying best and how, or for whom, well, or what, what context? Well, just simple examples. Like, if all of a sudden you've been feeling bad because you don't like something that everybody tells you you should like, stop feeling bad about it, right? Say, hey, if you're being honest with yourself, right? <laughs> if you happen to not like something that everybody says is brilliant, be like, I don't like it. That's fine, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, and if you, you know, are struggling with something and you, you know, you have this strong hatred for something, right? whether it's I hate all Trump voters or I hate anybody who doesn't, you know, recognize that that's a narrative that you could potentially become aware of and adjust your thinking. And, you know, and, and, I, and I think I was going to, I want to do a podcast about this, but yeah. I think it's a powerful example for me personally. I literally hated the Trump voters back during the 2016 election. Yeah. Despised them. Thought they were the biggest idiots in the world. Um, and realized after Trump wanted I pay attention to them that essentially that was my bias. You know, I had bought into this notion that people who went to NASCAR, people who happened to not like certain things that I like, people that somehow they were beneath me and they should be mocked and they should be made fun of, right? Yeah. And yeah. It, it flipped me where I basically, when people say, they're against the Trump voter. I say, I don't like Trump. I never liked Trump as a person. I can't stand Trump as a person. But it was a fundamental shift when I said, but Clinton was an equal pig to Trump. Clinton had pig-like characteristics to Trump, was more cloaked than Trump, was less honest than Trump. Trump has always been who he was. You know? And so True. don't pretend that <laughs> you yeah. aren't susceptible and that you don't pick somebody that supports what you want. right? And to me, recognizing that allows you to like free yourself to say, you know, um, I don't hate these people who vote for Trump. I'm not mad at them. I understand they're getting, and, and when I go through the facts of what he produced for them, the whole, and, and, and the media is a completely dishonest about Trump. And I see that. And I, and every time I say this to somebody, they say, you're for Trump. I said, I've not liked Trump before. I would never went to his wedding like Clinton did. I would never invite him into my show like David Lebron. He was a, he was a pig from the beginning in my eyes. But well, in your framework, in your framework, it sounds like you're applying not just narrative, but also reason. And I mean, you're 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 applying more than just one component to come exactly. To that I'm aware of my own narrative, which was basically, mm -hmm. you know, you know, doing exactly why the Trump voter rose up and voted voted for Trump because I was pretending people that because I love the city, I love diversity, right? I loved a set of things that was my aesthetic. But to say, people say, I don't have as much joy in that. I like my small town life, hanging out with my white friends at the bar. I don't like hate these people and want them dead or anything. But I don't feel like you should tell me if I don't want to do that, that I'm a horrible person. Good. Ex excellent example. Very good. All right, let's finish up. Okay, I've uh, I try to I try to I try to keep us in. We I try to keep us within an hour. Yep. I think we're gonna we have some some very 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 good follow up topics. But do you have any uh, concluding thoughts? You know, I think I hope. I mean, to me, I mean, John, I'm appreciating because to me, the whole purpose for me with talking about philosophy is to help people with their own lives, right? I mean, it's for sure. You know, I've done all this work in my, and it really is. You know, in anybody I interact with. It's empowering them to 
to live their best life regardless of their circumstances and using philosophy as a tool to accomplish that goal, right? I mean, that's, and so to me, it's just, you know, talking to these, whether you're a kid, you're like me, I mean, I love philosophy when I was 13 and I used it as a tool to enjoy life when I was 13. I'm still using it as a tool to enjoy life at 60. So to any of your listeners who are any age group, and I still talk to my mother who's 93 and try to use it as a tool to help her who's a conservative Catholic and sometimes diminishes people. And then I'm able to walk her through why she's not living up to Christ's message, right? And I talk from Christ's perspective and I say, and I talk about the difference between, you know, the Christ as he lived in the Catholic Church. We haven't even gotten into that, but the idea of getting into other people's narratives as a way of applying this to your life by helping others through issues is another another powerful uh, product. So be aware of a narrative you know, or believe aware of your belief. So a factual thing could say, do you not agree? So I say to my mother, did Christ not say this, right? So I can go to reason and data. Yeah. And didn't Christ do this? Weren't these his followers? So, so you can use reason and data to sort of point out, and didn't the Catholic Church, doesn't it replicate, and don't you have evidence of the pedophile scandal, that they actually didn't act so well with this power structure that, you know, so you can use reason and data and ethics at the same time, you know, and, and again, not to make my mother, you know, I keep saying, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm trying to let you be your best self, right? Because I know you, you know, you taught me so many good values, right? <laughs> You know, but at the same time, sometimes you have these views that seem inconsistent with your values. It's great. I love it. Well, Gerard Michaels, thank you for doing this. It is always a pleasure talking. I could do, I, I, we, honestly, every time I start, I think this could easily go on for another couple hours. John, you know, we again, should, I'm, I'm happy we to are, do it with you. Know, you. Definitely, I, you know, and, and, I, yeah. and I have to give you a lot of credit because you and I had a lot of conflict for a lot of years and I used to give you a hard time. And, and I'm so happy for you and Ted and your, your life now. Not to say that I was right and you were wrong. <laughs> That's not my yeah. point. You know, the fact that you invited me to your sister's home and did this the first time and it, it created great. comfort. It's great. I enjoy doing it. And Gerard, no, really, you. it's inspiring to hear you put together these ideas in a way that is so applicable to uh, to people. And it's and I love the fact that um, you're on a mission to kind of bring philosophy to us in our daily de- and, and life decision-making because it has at least rhetorically been absent for far too long. Yep. So it's great. Cool. So thanks so much. Thank and, you. And uh, I'd like to thank our listeners. If you like the podcast, please give us a rating in uh, Apple Podcasts. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you can find anything. Uh, you can certainly just go to Google and put, a, put, in, put in Second Rail, John Hines or Second Rail, John Hines, come right up. But if you like the show, it's the best way to tell someone.